0: Welcome to the tape ministry of Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, whose mission is to present everyone mature in Christ. It is our desire that the tapes of these services and messages from God's Word will touch lives deeply and encourage a closer walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you wish to contact the church for any reason, please phone us at 253-851-7779, or write us at Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, Post Office Box 829, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. At the end of the first section of the recording, please turn the tape over to hear the rest of the service. Now may God richly bless you as you join the people of Chapel Hill in worshiping the Lord and listening to the good news of Jesus Christ.
1: To sing in that choir because I want that chancel filled for Christmas. So, and they're having fun. There's no reason that you ought not to respond and join to that, be, join with that group. What a glorious sound! I was wearing a different hat this week. Ordinarily, when I'm in the hospital, it's because I'm visiting other families or parishioners who are going through uh, some surgeries. Um, this week, it was my mom who was going through surgery. She's doing just fine, but it was a major uh, surgery, and so I went in with my dad, uh, and to be with him and with her before she was taken in for her surgery, as all of you have done at one time or another, I had Eugene Peterson's new version of the Psalms with me, a new, a new uh, version of it, and, uh, and I said, Mom, would you like me to read you some Psalms as we are waiting here? Because after, after a while, you know, the, the anticipation of them coming to get you, it wears on you, and, she said, yeah, I'd like that. I said, how about if I read out of the Hallelujah Psalms? Because the last five psalms all begin and end with the word Hallelujah. They're the Hallelujah Psalms. I thought, well, that would be perky, uh, you know, encouraging. She said, that sounds great. So without having reviewed the new version of the psalm I was about to read, I began to read these words to her. Hallelujah, O oh my soul, praise God. All my life long I'll praise God, singing songs to my God as long as I live. Don't put your life in the hands of experts who know nothing of life. <laughs> Mere humans don't have what it takes. <laughs> that was very comforting. Uh, <laughs> her doc came in later. I said, "Would you like me to hear? Would you like to hear the psalm I've been reading to my mother to comfort her?" <laughs> he said, "Yes." So I read it to him. He uh, he appreciated it too. <laughs> we all knew that mom was going to be in for a time of suffering as she recovered, as you always go through during and after surgery. And uh, she's doing well. She's home now. Thank you for your prayers. We were particularly delighted when the doctor came in and said everything is great, looks good, but still she's in for a time of of some suffering. Uh, We're going to be talking about that this morning as we turn to the letter to the Smyrnians. Our parcel for today, dealing with this topic, bigger than the last week, what in the world does that have to do? ...with suffering and adversity. Think about it. Think about it as we listen together... ...to John's letter to the Christians in Smyrna. Because you see, they have some suffering ahead. In fact, they've already been experiencing a great deal of suffering... ...and there's more to come. John is uh, writing to us in the book of Revelation... ...chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write... These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Now, God, speak to us your healing word, especially to those of us who are in Smyrna right now. As we face suffering in this moment or look ahead to a time when we shall, may we find the words of encouragement that only you can offer as you speak them to us, the words of life, through Christ our Lord. Amen. What church were we talking to last week? Ephesus, the church of Ephesus. Now, if you took a a car 35 miles north from Ephesus, you would come to the coastal town of Smyrna. Smyrna was then and is today an important harbor community. It has a wonderful protected harbor. In fact, the mouth of the harbor is so narrow that they were actually able to put a gate across it when they were in times of warfare. That's a pretty narrow harbor. Smyrna is the only town that still exists today. It is called Izmir now. It's the only town of the original seven that is still an actual functioning community. At the time that John wrote this letter to him as he shared the revelation from Jesus to this church in Smyrna, which was, by the way, the next stop on the postal route. If you went, first of all, to Ephesus, that's where the Roman postal route began. The next stop was Smyrna, up the the coast a little ways. And as we go through these churches, it follows exactly the Roman postal route that they would have taken to deliver the letters, stop by stop. 200,000 people lived there. It was an important trading community because of this good harbor. It was also a community that was deeply tied and had been from the earliest days to the Roman government. Even before Rome was completely entrenched in power, Smyrna uh, cast their lot with the Romans. And so, as a consequence, they were a, a city of great repute. It was their pr- pr- uh, prerogative, for instance, to, to build a great temple to the goddess of Rome. They had a, uh, a hillside outside of the city, as many ancient cities did, which was called the Acropolis. Acropolis. You know that there's an Acropolis in Athens, and the Parthenon sat there. Well, it wasn't just one temple that sat on the Acropolis at Smyrna. The, the temple to the goddess of Rome was one. But because they were such a prestigious Roman city, when the time came to vie for a temple for the worship of Emperor Tiberius, it was Smyrna alone that was granted that privilege. And so there was also on this uh, Acropolis a temple to the god, emperor god Tiberius, along with several others. In fact, they form a ring on the top of the Acropolis, and that hillside was known as the crown of Smyrna. Remember that for later on. But if the community was prospering and well off, the, the Smyrnian church was not. Did you catch that as you were reading? They are facing, in fact, Apparently great trouble, great trials as we heard sung of in our uh, anthem this morning. Jesus says in verse 9, and look please, uh, I know your afflictions and your poverty. The word affliction there is philipsis, philipsis, that's not a great word to say, but it, it sounds just like what it means. It means crushing pressure, crushing pressure. The Smyrnian church was experiencing crushing persecution. Remember, we talked about the date when this was being written. It is in the mid 90s. Diocletian was the emperor in charge at that time, and there was, in fact, a period of persecution under the emperor Diocletian. But are the Romans the ones who were doing most of the persecuting in the city of Smyrna? Yes. How many say yes? How many say no? How many are waiting for my answer? Uh, Look at your text. Look at your text. John describes those who are really bringing the, the pressure to bear on the Smyrnian church, and it is not the Romans at all. Listen again, the rest of verse 9. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, there might be a lot of names out on the, the reader board sign of a, of a street, but I, get, I bet that the synagogue of Satan would not be a, a popular one. And yet, that's his words to describe this Jewish community. And it is Largely in part because they had apparently violated their own religious laws. Uh, Our historians, our our archaeologists tell us that the Jewish community in Smyrna had begun to fold into their worship the worship of Zeus as well. So they were becoming very eclectic in their approach to worship. And uh, and it was apparently this group of of pseudo-Jews, that had, this, had a, a real problem with the Christians, and they were persecuting them, hounding them in some ways. They had a particular hatred. And it, it came out, it was demonstrated 70 years later uh, in the life of someone that Pastor Stewart referred to last Wednesday. He was the Bishop of Smyrna, funny name, but a wonderful godly man named Polycarp. Polycarp. Say the name. Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. You may want to name your children Polycarp after you hear the story, and you may not. Polycarp was tried and arrested for atheism because he would not uh, uh, give his allegiance to the Roman gods, and he was uh, sentenced to be burned at the stake. That was bad enough. Uh, The Jewish community gathered the sticks to help burn Polycarp at the stake. That is pretty bad, but they did so on their Sabbath. That should give you some idea of the hatred that they bore towards the Christian community and Polycarp their leader. This letter to Smyrna is a letter to folks who are suffering. Not all of the churches in the seven churches seem to be suffering. The people in Smyrna are suffering, and some of them are suffering terribly. And when you hear the letter, when you hear the words of Jesus, it's not very encouraging, at least not on the face of it, because Jesus says, you're going to suffer some more. In fact, he says, some of you are going to suffer even to the point of death. The letter to Smyrna also has our names On it. Some of you who are young and healthy don't believe it. It's only a matter of time before you will believe it. The letter to Smyrna has every one of our name, one at a time, filling in the blank. Dear Mark, dear Stuart, dear Cindy, the only question is the date in the upper right-hand corner of when it will be sent. For surely as we breathe, surely as we live, we we shall suffer. At one time or another, we will experience suffering. Whether it will be illness, the loss of job, the loss of relationship the loss of our life, the loss of the life of someone that we love. It is only a matter of time before we face tribulation, suffering, perhaps persecution. That is reality. One of the the phenomenon of being young is that you don't believe that about yourself. But take it from me, it will come. And so the question then is, how shall we, who, when we are in Smyrna, face the trial that we discover is our own lot? How shall we face death and suffering and persecution? This is frankly not the sort of letter that we want to get. If we can think of the letters that we would like Jesus to send to us, this is not the one we'd want. We want the congratulations, you've won a million dollars. And it really means we've won a million dollars. Not that you've got to send in your name and, and every piece of information you own to find out. Our, um, our almost four-year-old child, Cooper, is a very strong-willed boy. He gets that from his mother. Uh, <laughs> But he is also very courteous. If you ask Cooper to do something, to eat something, to wear something that he does not want to do, eat or wear, he will say, no thank you. If you insist that he do eat or wear it, he will say, no thank you, no thank you, no thank you daddy. Uh, He was babysat by one of our friends last week and she said, you know, Cooper is the most polite, disobedient child I have ever met. (laughs) When we read the letter to Smyrna, the letter addressed to us as well, we are just like Cooper. We say, no thank you, no thank you, no thank you, daddy. I am not interested. Send that to someone else. Send that on to the the Philadelphians. Give me something different. So how do we face this adversity? Whether we welcome it or not, it shall come. How do we face it? Well, let me give you a couple of things I draw out of this this text. First of all, we face adversity by remembering that we have an enemy. We have an enemy. Jesus is very clear in this text when he is speaking his message to the Smyrnian church of the source of their persecution. Who is it? Satan. And he doesn't say it just once, he mentions his name twice. Synagogue of Satan, and then the devil. Diabolos, the accuser. He mentions him twice. Now it may seem to us in this enlightened age foolish to believe in an actual personality that is the existence of real evil. But Just so you are clear on this, Jesus believed in a devil. Paul believed in a devil. Peter believed in a devil. John believed in a real devil. Not pitchfork, not horns, but a real personality who is intent on destruction. And if you ignore that reality, my brothers and sisters in Christ, you do so at your own peril. It was hard for me to watch The people that we saw last Wednesday, as you may or may not know, it was our privilege to host the memorial service for Mike McKinney, the coach across the street. And I need to tell you, it's a terrible thing to have together for that reason, but it was a glorious thing to be able to host it. Once again, this building that you built served our community in a a wonderful way, and, and Stuart brought the gospel message to a group of 691 mostly kids who were there hurting It was difficult to listen in on conversations, though, as they tried to make sense of the death of their beloved high school coach. I heard folks saying things like this, God must have a losing team in heaven that he needs help with. Now, I understand the sentiment behind that. I really do. We want to attach meaning and suffering to our loss, to the senselessness of this. We want to be able to say that that somehow God orchestrated it because it gives us comfort. But you know that the end result of that logic is, then, that God grabs the wheel and turns a car into a tree. Or that God touches a piece of skin and turns it into melanoma. Or that God blows upon a relationship and dissolves a marriage. God is love. God is not the source of evil or darkness or sickness or death. God can certainly work within those circumstances all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. But we must affirm that God is not the author of evil, ever, ever, ever. And if you are suffering adversity of some sort, please remember that we have an enemy who is a liar and a destroyer. It is he who seeks to come come and, and steal, steal and kill and destroy. Sickness, death, hurricanes, earthquakes, all of that in this world is a result of the fallenness, the brokenness of this world. And we would do well to remind ourselves of that fact. But we need also remind ourselves of a second fact, that he is a defeated enemy. He is a defeated enemy. Did you notice how long is the persecution going to take place? Ten days. Is that odd? I mean, ten days, where does that come from? I believe that what that means is simply a, a short, definite period of time. John is saying, you will be persecuted, but there is a limit to it. And here is the great principle that comes out of this. Yes, there is an enemy. We have an enemy, but he is limited. He is a defeated enemy. And God has drawn lines. He says, this far and no farther. Even when the enemy wanted to come and tempt Job, he had to ask permission. He had to be given permission to do even the things that he did. Ultimately, we believe that God delimits the power of Satan and he will defeat Satan in the end. He will be victorious. And so the third hope that we find in this text is simply this. Hang in there. We have an enemy. He is a defeated enemy. We may be persecuted, tormented, in sickness, in trouble, in sorrow. Hang in there. That is really the encouragement that we are given in this text. And by the way, this is one of only two churches that he doesn't have any criticism for. The Spirit of Christ is gracious. He knows when we can bear no more. And he comes to them simply with these words of encouragement. He says, hang in there. Don't give up. Endure. And Jesus says it two ways. Look at your text. Verse 10. First of all, he says, be faithful even to the point of death. If that's what it requires of you, hang in there even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. That word that is used there, we might think that it's a diadem like a king would wear. That's not the crown that it means. This crown, the word here in the Greek, means the laurel garland that was worn by the victor of the race. You see why that's better? Hang in there and you will win the crown, the award that goes to the person who finishes the race. Hang in there. And by the way, I can't help but thinking that... Jesus might be saying to these folks who live in Smyrna, in the shadow of the Acropolis, hang in there and you will win for yourself, not the crown of Smyrna, but the crown of life. Is that good? And then the second time that Jesus says it in a different way is in verse 11. He who overcomes, there's that word again, are you noticing it? You ought to be underlining it, this is a story about overcomers. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Anybody look at that and say, what's second death? Well, we know what first death is. I believe the second death is that, it's the only place it's referred to is in the book of Revelation. And I believe the second death is judgment. I believe second death is what John uses, what Jesus uses, to describe what we will read about later in chapter 20 as that fiery lake of fire. The the, the lake of fire. When all things will be judged, all evil will be destroyed. Do you hear what he's saying then? Hang in there. Those who are overcomers, you will never face that lake of fire, that lake of judgment, that fiery lake of judgment. And what is cool about this is that the Greek uses a double negative. It's for emphasis. And so what it says is, for those who overcome, they will never, never endure, never be hurt by the second death. In other words, no matter what the world dishes out, no matter how he might suffer in this life, even to the point of death, those of us who belong to Jesus will ultimately know real, perfect, and eternal life. So do you have any idea what this is about? Four years ago, Rich Jasper and Tom Hawes and I climbed Mount Rainier. It was the most difficult, exhausting physical thing that I have ever done. We made our way halfway up the first day to Camp Muir, and then the next morning at midnight, actually, we roped up with a rope just like this, put on our helmets and our lights on our heads, our crampons and our ice axes. We began to climb across the glacier and began what was a nine-hour hike for the rest of the 4,000 feet up to the summit of the mountain. Halfway up, when we had passed by much of the rock work and we're now walking on essentially glacial Uh, glacial snow and ice. We were at a point where the oxygen was so thin that it was literally, you take a step, you pause, and take a deep breath. Step, pause, breathe. And it was like that every way. And we we were roped up. Sometimes the rope would be tense because one was lagging behind, and so we kind of helped pull each other up. And I could barely, it was all I could do to keep my focus on the one thing that I had to do, which was step, pause, and breathe. But at one time, I stopped and I looked above me, wondering how far I had to go. And I saw up there, stretching above me, into the heavens, a switchback of little lights that faded, it seemed, into the sky of the darkness. And I thought, how will we ever get there? How will we ever get there? Of course, the problem is you're halfway there. Uh, you gotta, I mean, you might as well keep going, and if they don't, they put you in a blue bag and stick you to the side and make you wait until they come back down. I wasn't going to go in a blue bag. <laughs> and so the answer to how we make it to the top is that you just keep going. Step, stop, breathe. Step, stop, breathe. And suddenly you discover yourself at the summit and you receive the the crown of victory, the crown of life. I don't think it's much different. I don't think it's much different. I was grateful to be roped into a group of men that I trusted who would support me and encourage me as I hoped to do for them, and together we made it in that journey. Isn't that exactly what we are called to do in community? We are roped together. I wish we could tie ourselves up today all the way around the sanctuary as a symbol of that. We are not in this alone. I told someone that yesterday who was facing some stark news. You are not in this alone. We are in this together. And together, we will take the step. We will stop. We will breathe. And we will carry on. And we especially on this communion day, on this communion Sunday, we will remind ourselves that we belong to a Jesus who also knew what it meant to endure to the end. Listen as we prepare for communion to these glorious words from Hebrews twelve two. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us pray. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, now as we come to this sacrament, this time of sacrament, I lift up those who can relate to the Smyrnian church, who are suffering and struggling And I pray that we might be reminded in this moment of communion of your suffering, of your struggle, but unto victory. And that in partaking of this, we will know hope. We will know endurance. We will know the promise of life. For we pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. We now come to the joyous feast of the people of God. All who love Jesus Christ and are truly repentant for their sins, and that means that you're sorry for what you have done, that you want to be different persons, all are invited to this table. We will partake today by intinction. You will come forward to the uh, station that is closest to your pews, and together we will celebrate the gift of God in Jesus Christ. Listen anew to the words which you've heard so many times before, but let this not be ritual for you, not formula for you. Let this be new and fresh as you hear the words of life. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had blessed it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, He took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. As often as you drink of it, do so remembering me so that whenever we eat this bread or drink from this cup, we proclaim the death of our Lord until he comes again. And now we, ministering in the name of Jesus, offer to you bread and juice that they might be for you the body and blood of Christ and that in the partaking of them you might find nourishment for your souls. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we join with the millions of saints down through the ages who have partaken of this simple meal, and the millions of saints across the world today who do so again, to declare your sacrifice was complete, your love was perfect, and your salvation was sure. We thank you for the gift of bread and juice, and we pray today, Lord, that this would not be ritual for us, But somehow, in the partaking of it, we will experience anew the power of your Spirit at work in our lives. For we pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Again, there will be stations. Please exit to the right of your pews and return them to the left. Those who are unable to uh, move, we have rovers who will bring the elements to you. Take this and this. You'll take the cup.